Uh, We're continuing our study. Let's pray, uh, and we'll read Revelation chapter 1, verses 9 through 20. Father, we do thank you uh, for this time that we have. Um, Lord, this book is, is, is a great book. It's it's one of these books in the Bible that seem like you're step into holy ground, and uh, the, the images, the pictures, the, the description of who you are is, is more than we can fathom. And so, Father, as we continue our journey through this book, we ask that your spirit would guide us, uh, that you would illuminate the meaning, uh, that you would help us to know how it applies in our lives. Uh, from the third verse, it tells us, blessed is he who reads and those who hear um, the, the words written in this book and apply them to their lives. And so this isn't just some book to, to talk about abstractly. Uh, this is a letter from you to us uh, to help us with our lives. And so, Father, we pray that you would um, help us to avoid kind of meandering down topics that maybe are less relevant and, and help us to see Uh, the practical application in this book for us. May our eyes be open to your majesty, your greatness, uh, your sovereignty, and may we uh, align our lives in a way that shows that we truly recognize you as the sovereign, awesome God that you are. Uh, And it's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen. Revelation chapter 1, verse 9. I, John your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance which are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet saying, write in a book what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, and to Smyrna, and to Pergamum, and to Thyatira, and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the middle of the lampstands I saw one like a son of man, clothed in a robe reaching to the feet and girded across his chest with a golden sash. His head and his hair were white, like white wool, like snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze when it had been made to glow in a furnace. And his voice was like the sound of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in its strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man, and he placed his right hand on me, saying, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one, and I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Therefore write the things which you have seen, and the things which are, and the things which will take place after these things. As for the mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angel's of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Father, we do ask that you would guide us now. Uh, We pray that your spirit would lead us along, help us to understand that which you have revealed to us. Um, May you illuminate its meaning, its significance, and Lord, help us to grow in our relationship with you. And it's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen. Okay, I'm not going to give the whole introduction. We spent a long time last week sort of laying the framework for how we're going to handle this book. Um, and so I'd encourage you, if you missed it, you could get the CD or listen online just to sort of uh, to, to know the foundation for how we are approaching this, this book. There are a number of different ways that one could 
handle it. I shared how I handle it. There's no reason to repeat myself. Um, but to ease into it, last week was sort of the introduction to the introduction. Today was sort of the introduction of what happened to John, what's going to sort of lead us into the rest of the book. Uh, but the first thing we see last week is, uh, in verse 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ. So this word, revelation, it's the word where we get apocalypse in today's tech, in today's speaking. However, the term apocalypse has a very different meaning today than it did then. Uh, back then, it meant uh, an unveiling, a revealing, a, a explaining or showing something that was sort of concealed. And so we see that there is a revelation singular. If you say revelations, it's like nails on a chalkboard to me. There's not multiple revelations. It's a revelation of Jesus Christ. And so Jesus Christ makes his appearance to the Apostle John. And John is given this revelation to pass on to these seven churches, which we will look at in the coming weeks. Uh, verse 3 tells us, Blessed is he who reads and who hears the words of the prophecy and heeds the things which are written in them, for the time is near. So we're told that this, this book is a prophetical book. It's a revelation that was given to John to tell about something that was coming in the future. Uh, we're told <clears throat> that Jesus, in verse 5, the second half, to him, speaking of Jesus, who loves us and released us for, from our sins by his blood. This book is about the gospel. All through it, the implications of what Jesus did, his death, burial, and resurrection, uh, so often today, even as we're taking communion, it's very easy for us to look backwards to the person of Jesus, his, his humble life in the Gospels, uh, to see what he did on the cross, to look at his sacrifice for us. And we tend to um, see that image of Jesus. And I think Revelation sort of puts, pushes our eyes forward uh, to see this majestic, awesome, breathtaking image of the person of Christ who is, who was, and always is, that he is the eternal God, that he's awesome, he's, he's the creator of all things. And so I think in many ways this book serves to wake us up, uh, to, to enlighten us, to, to, to remind us how great Jesus is, um, and so that we would align our lives in, according, in accordance with this reality. Um, we know that these saints were going through great persecution, this book was written about A.D. 95, um, and the Caesar at the time was terrible. Um, persecution was widespread. We'll see today that John the Apostle is now exiled to, to Patmos. This isn't a resort island. This is, uh, think Alcatraz on steroids. Um, he was out there as a prisoner doing slave labor, um, which we'll get into. I'm getting ahead of myself. We look at verse 9. And we read, I, John, your brother and fellow partaker. And I just have to pause here. Like, the simplicity of his introduction on who he is is beautiful. Um, just, I, John, your brother. Who is this guy? This is the Apostle John. He, he at this time in his life, is in his mid to mid, early to mid-90s, I think is what they suspect he was. This is, this is one of the inner three of the apostles. There was Peter, James, and John that were given special access that Jesus, when he would do great miracles, he would invite these three in. They saw uh, people risen from the dead. They saw the transfiguration of Jesus Christ, that, that Jesus revealed his glory and he was transfigured. And Peter, James, and John were there to see uh, Jesus sort of showing his deity to the guys. Uh, on the night which Jesus was betrayed and he went to go pray, he, he left the disciples there, but he brought Peter, James, and John very close to him as, as he prayed, and we know how that went. Um, th this is the John who, when Jesus was being crucified, was at the foot of the cross, and Jesus from the cross looks at him and he says to his mom, behold, this is your son. And to John, he says, this is your mother. Take care of her. And tradition holds that he cared for Jesus' mom, Mary, for the duration of his life until she passed. And now in his late age, he's exiled on this island. The only remaining apostle, everybody else had been executed. Everyone else had been executed. I mean, I was going to say in other stuff. No, they were all executed. And he's the only one that remains. He is sort of the, the last 
that was with Jesus firsthand to touch and to see. This guy was like awesome. And he introduces himself to the church, I, your brother, a fellow partaker, this, this word for fellowship that we get, partaker, that they weren't, they weren't participating in. You know, what do we say? Food, fun, and fellowship. That's kind of how we've identified fellowship. He identifies this fellowship, this, this special bond that, that, is, that only occurs because they're united in Christ. They share this uniqueness in relationship and that they have surrendered their lives to Christ and that they're walking with Christ as his followers no matter how bad it got. They're described as bond servants, those that had the ability to walk away, but they chose to remain in the place they were, trusting um, that life was better following their Lord Jesus. He says, I'm a fellow partaker with them in the tribulation. Now, we're not speaking of the tribulation that we often know of too as a seven-year window where um, this is in the tribulation, the trials and the suffering that they were going through as a church. Uh, this, this kingdom that Jesus announced his coming kingdom, that it, was, that it had begun, but it hadn't been fully, um, f- fully made perfect. So they were citizens of this kingdom, but the ki- kingdom hadn't been fully realized. As we get to Revelation chapter 20, we'll see that this earthly kingdom, when Jesus comes to reign and to rule for this thousand years, the millennium, It'll be a very different image than what they were experiencing then. But John says, we are fellow partakers in this tribulation, in, in the kingdom, in perseverance. This is the word that in James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4, James used this word a couple times as endurance. It's the idea that to be under extreme suffering and then to be able to bear up under uh, the strain it was a term that was used for animals, like a donkey that you would load up with gear, and as they were fully loaded up and they could handle no more before they would collapse, as they could stand under the weight, this is the word perseverance. And John says that we're partaking in the perseverance for they have hope in knowing that God was in control no matter how bad things were, and that they were in fellowship with one another And as I look at this introduction in verse 9, there are a couple things that stand out to me. All of these things that we mentioned all happened in Jesus. That he recognized at the rough time, the difficulty that he was going through, that Jesus wasn't, it wasn't that Jesus was unable to get them out from under it. He recognized that the suffering and the trials they were going through was in the sovereign plan of God and that God was doing something in the midst of it. I don't see any complaining about his circumstances. He wasn't complaining that he was out, uh, you know, they believed that, that what they were doing on Patmos was quarrying for marble, that he wasn't doing this hard slave labor complaining like, man, I should be in a retirement home, sitting in the jacuzzi or, you know, like, there, there's absolutely no complaining about his circumstances. There's no complaining about his government or worshiping his government more rightly. Because he was there, we'll see that he was there because of his testimony towards Jesus, that Jesus was Lord, not the Caesar. And he wouldn't give on that point. All of his hope lied within Jesus. And then as a pastor, what I love about his introduction is he was in the trenches with them. He wasn't some guy like up on a pedestal looking down at the, you know, the whatever, whatever the minions is what, what else. <laughs> the, the, he was a guy who was saved by grace, who'd been touched by the Lord, and he humbly walked and served with them shoulder, like arm in arm, not shoulder and shoulder, it's linking arms, you know, going through life together. And I think that that's the desire that should be of any pastor that's serving a church, that there should be humility. There should be like, hey, we're going through life together. I'm not perfect. I hope you guys, well, I know you guys don't think I'm perfect. And I'm certainly not trying to pull off the, like some you know, fake idea that you think I'm perfect. I'm just a sinner that's been saved by grace. And God, for whatever reason, has placed me in this position to teach the scriptures. Like, and I'm super humbled and honored to be in this role. 
but I'm just a guy that's walking with Jesus like you all. And we're all in this together. And I love that we see this example from the Apostle John, the guy who knew Jesus, who loved Jesus, who was like there for all of his ministry, was there at the cross, saw the transfiguration, all of this stuff. You know, I came out of the Catholic Church as a kid and the Pope was reverent, you know, like, oh, we, you, I mean, literally, you, you reverence the Pope. And to think if there was any person next to Jesus who you could actually make a case for, like, hey, there's good reason to, like, worship this guy. I think you could make a strong case for John. But John just says, I'm John. I'm just your brother. I'm your fellow partaker in these this sufferings in Christ that we're in this together. It's not about me. It's about him. He says, and continuing, he says um, that he was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. And so, so he continued to proclaim the word of God, the good news about the gospel that Jesus died, he was buried, he rose again to absorb the wrath that was due humanity and that people could have forgiveness, they could have hope, they could have relationship with God through faith in Christ. And he never gave up on that no matter what they did to him. And the testimony of Jesus, what was the testimony? The testimony of Jesus is that he is Lord. And yet you had a Caesar, Domitian, Domitian I always want to say dominoes, <clears throat> so I'll just keep saying Caesar. He, had, he wanted, he on his coins, as people saw him, he required that they, people refer to him as deity, and none of the Christians would do this, and so persecution came to the Christians. And so John says, I'm exiled out here on Patmos because I won't, recant who I say Jesus is. And if Jesus is Lord, then there is no other Lord, and I will not give that title to anybody else. So this island, um, it's a little bit early, but we can go to the next slide. So next to Turkey, like it's kind of blown up here. This is Turkey. A little bit off the island, like a little bit off Turkey, there's a little island there. It's about half the size of Catalina in the, in the Aegean Sea. Um, we know that prisoners were sent there to quarry marble. It was a very hard life. Um, the earliest historical records indicate that John was exiled to this penal colony for 18 months, beginning in A.D. 95. Um, you know, we have tradition that says John was boiled in a vat of oil or water. We don't really know for sure, but there's, there's evidence that supports that he was boiled alive. They were going to execute him. But somehow he survived, and they were so... Um, the Caesar was so, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Superstitious, that's the word. That if he survived this boiling, then he had to do something with them because he's not going to execute him. So he sent him out to this island uh, to sort of not kill him, but to kind of kill him kind of thing. And so we know that he's out there on this island. And then in verse 10, we're told, uh, John says, I was in this spirit on the Lord's day. And so... This word in the spirit, just the first thing is sort of like a looking out at Revelation, the book. Um, I think I put it up there. So Revelation 1, 10, 4, 2, 7, 13, or 17, 3, and 21, 10. This phrase is used four times. There are some who outline the book through these phrases of in the spirit or I was in the spirit and then this. So you can highlight those. That's not the outline I'm choosing to follow. I'm not saying it's wrong. I'm just, I'm not committing to any outline at this point and how I'm preaching it. And <clears throat> so this is a phrase that comes up. I, this would be a phrase that we could make it to be like a super big deal. Um, mounts uh, in the notes from the Net Bible, which is really good. Mounts is one of like the leading uh, Greek scholars he says this on this, or in this spirit. Spirit could refer to either the Holy Spirit or the human spirit. But in either case, John was in a state of spiritual exaltation, best described as a trance. So whatever happened, his heart was aligned. He's in the spirit. I liked in practical terms, like before we get into the, well, I'm not going to get into the whatever, um, but Ephesians 5.18, practical command for us. If you were to go to Ephesians 5.15, you'll read, by the time you get to verse 18, it says, be not drunk with, uh, be filled with wine, or don't, uh, do not be filled. 
I did a lot of Bible memory this week for fear of getting pie in me, and I get like really nervous, so I would go up to Teresa, and I'd say, okay, I'm ready, and I would just shut everybody out. <clears throat> I'm just going to go there. Thank you, Dave. <laughs> so the idea is control, and, and when we're talking about alcohol, you reach a certain point where alcohol has control of you and you're no longer sort of like thinking or in control of your behavior. And so the idea is to be controlled by the Spirit of God. And so I think biblically what's happening here is I think that when we look at the New Testament as followers of Christ, there are things that we can do that sort of uh, cultivate our hearts and our minds and how we think and uh, so that the Holy Spirit is able, that he is able to then work within us to do his will. And so there, there you know, sin, we, there are things we shouldn't do, there are things that we can do, being in the word, praying, setting our hearts up to be, to say, Lord, here I am, use me. And so what, whatever this is, John had placed his life in a position, we're told on the Lord's Day, which there's a lot of different things you can make about this, generally speaking, we think he's just saying it was a Sunday, that as he was there, something pretty incredible happened. We can all agree on that. I like what Swindoll says on this little experience, that he was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. Swindoll, Charles Swindoll says, even in exile for his faith, dwelling in the uncertain surroundings of a rocky penal colony, the elderly apostle set aside time on the Lord's Day Sunday to worship and pray. That is what I call devotion. Perhaps he was kneeling in prayer, reciting the Psalms, when something supernatural took hold of him and ripped him out of the sphere of this world and transported him into the spiritual realm. So, so I believe that if you were there and you saw John, that what you would have saw, seen his body, but, but the Lord revealed some pretty crazy stuff to him. And so we continue, and he said, and I heard behind me a loud voice, like, if you write in your Bible, I'd encourage you that through today's passage to circle all the likes. There's a whole lot of likes. It's like something happens, he describes it, and he says, the best that I can do in describing it is like this. It's not saying this. He's saying like this. So if you can imagine the that, that the this, or that the like is describing, that would help you understand what he was experiencing. So he said, and I heard behind me, so behind him, I heard a loud voice. So he heard a voice. But in describing this voice, he says, it was like the sound of a trumpet saying, write in a book what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamum, to Thyatira, and to, to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and Laodicea. These are the seven churches that you see on this thing. If you were to go from Patmos inland, you would hit Ephesus. Then as you went around the circle, you would hit the seven churches that were real, that existed. So he says, I'm about to tell you something. Um, so he's there, he's praying, he's doing whatever, he hears this loud voice. All we, we're all Southern Californians. Is there anybody who hasn't been to a Mexican restaurant? Everybody's been to a Mexican restaurant. I want to start from an illustration that we all understand. And I'm so glad Pete's in church today. Pete's 90th birthday, what he wanted, his whole life, what he wanted, a mariachi band. <laughs> and you've all been to the Mexican restaurant where you're not paying attention, and then all of a sudden, up behind you goes, you know, and the mariachi band gets going, and it's so loud, and it can give you like a heart attack. And it's like there's no way, like... You know, Beth was in town, and the Ongs were going to go to dinner, and they're like, hey, we're actually we're going to go from this restaurant to the other restaurant because the mariachi band is like entirely too loud. There's no way we can talk. But it's like you're there, and it's like the trumpets go, and you're like, what in the world is happening? You guys are awesome. Could you back up like 50 yards or so? And it would be perfect. So I have this image of a mariachi band. <laughs> we're going into areas that the Bible doesn't talk about. But the sound of a trumpet. And he hasn't turned around yet. 
But before he turns around, we're told that an instruction is given right in a book. Now, don't think book like we have things scroll. They would write it, they would write it like a left-handed person, the, like, like we all dream about the lefties, that we would go from right to left. And then they would scroll it up. Well, I'd probably take that back because they were going Greek, so they were going the other way. See, I'm just longing to, for things to be like Hebrew. <laughs> um, so they roll it up, and then you send it to these churches. So the voice tells them initially, like, I'm going to give you this vision. This vision, I'm giving it to you, but the purpose is for these churches. For the churches at large, it's a circular letter that these seven churches are going to be addressed. And we're going to see this vision. Before I get into this vision, I want to start with, I'm very skeptical of visions. If you come up to me and you say, hey, I had a vision last night. I'll be very polite to you, and I'll be, in my heart, I'm skeptimistic. I've taken a pessimist and a skeptical, and I've merged them. And so I'm not saying that there's nothing to vision. Like, people have visions, great. But I'm more concerned about the Bible. Um, With that being said, the guy who led me to the Christ, who is now deceased, he was my good buddy's older brother, and he came to Christ because he was arguing with Christians on a road trip, and he told me that he that he saw Jesus driving down the 8 east or the 10 heading to Arizona. And the, this image of this person said, John, do you love me? My buddy's name was John, not this John. And when he told me this, he became a Christian. I said, dude, I like, kind of think you're a whack job. <laughs> and if it came from anybody else, I would be absolutely certain that you're a whack job. But because I have so much respect for you and I know you not to be a religious nut, like I don't know what to do with this. This case, this is very different because this is the Apostle John by the Holy Spirit giving us the word of God. And so he's about to reveal this vision to us that is going to, or should, if you were there, it would blow your mind. So verse 12, then I turned to see the voice. Remember the mariachi band. The trumpet happens. What in the world is going on? So he turns around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. So there's some speculate. This is either one lampstand that has, a, you know, like a menorah. The menorah has seven candles on top of one. Some say this is seven individual candles. Problem is, John didn't take a picture for us. He just said that he, having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. Now, we don't have to go too far to figure out what is he talking about. We don't have to speculate. If you just go down to verse 20, there's a little code that it tells us plainly. In verse 20, as for the mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So I saw seven golden lampstands. Jesus is going to tell him that these seven lampstands are the seven churches. Then he says in verse 13, and in the middle of the lampstands I saw one. So this is what he saw. He saw one, a human, an individual, like. So he's going to try to describe it as best he can, like a son of man. It's like human. It's like a man. Clothed in a robe, reaching to the feet, and girded across his chest was this golden sash. So you have this, this robe, gold sash across. We know the robe goes to the feet. There are commentaries to galore that will give you all sorts of stuff about what all this stuff means in their theories. I'm not going to speculate here. All we see is there's a robe. There's a guy, a robe, down to his feet, golden sash. His head and his hair, now we're talking about word like, white wool, like snow. So he describes his head, and there's hair. Uh, it's funny that this is, this is the most description we have of Jesus anywhere in the Bible. In the whole New Testament, we, just assume, we know he's a Jewish guy, so we kind of paint Jewish pictures of him. But nobody really described Jesus, like what his haircut looked like, or what it's like, you know, like we have Isaiah, and we have stuff. This is the most detailed image of Jesus that we have anywhere in the whole Bible. And so we're told that his head and his hair, he had white hair, like wool, like snow, his eyes. So we can see eyes in this image. And he said his eyes were like a flame of fire. 
He didn't say they were fire. He said light. When I look at him, it, it, it looked like a flame of fire to me. His feet were like burnished bronze when it had been made to glow in the furnace. So you, you, know, you have your fire poker, you let it go in the stick for as long as you can, and then all of a sudden it starts glowing. He says, that's kind of what his feet reminded me of. It was like that. And his voice was like this sound of Gunner's sleep app. <laughs> Many waters. Like I have like the river sound or the wave sound. So I don't know that this is calming, but, but his voice <laughs> moves. Through, like He heard something like a trumpet, but now it's suddenly waters. And in his right hand, not, there's no like, so in the right hand he sees seven stars. Now we don't have to speculate, remember verse 20. So the seven stars, we're told, are the angels of the churches, the seven angels of the seven churches. So these stars, do I have it in the right hand? In his right hand, hey, I got it. We don't know what these angels are. Speculation is that they're angels. <laughs> uh, other speculation that they're guardian angels of the churches. Other speculation is that they're like the senior pastor or lead pastors that are shepherding these seven churches. We don't really know. But we'll see that as we go through the next couple chapters, each letter to each of the churches, it'll say to the angel of that church, I give you this letter. So some make the case that it's like the lead pastor that's shepherding over that is to give it out to them. Then out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword there's no like there. So this is like literally he sees uh, this big old, like this is a sword like from Gladiator kind of thing. Like not like a Ginsu knife. Like this is major knife, like major sword out of his mouth. Speculated that Jesus' words are powerful. His face was like the sun shining in its strength. And so... What I want to say about this is the, the point that I see is that this is an awesome image of Jesus. If you just imagine this, this is overwhelming. And as we navigate the book of Revelation, if you start focusing on like the Antichrist, the rapture, the second coming, all of these peripheral issues and you miss the person of Christ, you've missed the whole book of Revelation this is the revelation of Jesus Christ. This whole book is about him. And, and this book should lead us to falling at his feet in reverence and worship of him. Surrendering our lives to him. I mean, look at verse 17. When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. I just want to say, duh, what would you do? <laughs> like, it's my co-pilot, you know? Like, we have these bumper stickers, about, not, like, not literally, but you've seen bumper stickers. Jesus is my co-pilot. My best friend's a carpenter. You know, all these little, like, colloquialisms that we have, I don't know if that's colloquialism, but all these little things that we say, these Christianese terms about Jesus. I think this book is saying, like, no, this is your Jesus. We should have reverence for him. We should be in awe of him. John and every other person in the Bible that encountered the living God, their immediate reaction is to fall on their face and say, woe is me, for I am not worthy to be in the presence of this holiness. Terrified. This word, I, when I saw him, this word saw is a fascinating word. I'd like to go back in John's life. If you join me back in John chapter 20. So we're same John, he's a much younger man. We find ourselves historically right after the, 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 the crucifixion of Jesus. Mary had gone to the tomb. She said the tomb was empty. She'd reported back to the disciples, hey, he's gone. It's kind of one of my favorite scenes in the whole Bible because young John, he gets in a foot race he makes it to the tomb before Peter, the old guy, and he documents it. Hey, I got there before him. <clears throat> so verse 4, John chapter 20, verse 4. The two, that's Peter and John. John the apostle, the same author of Revelation, is writing this. 
And he says, the two were running together, and the other disciple ran ahead faster than Peter and came to the tomb first. He says, I got there first. And stooping and looking in, he saw. He says he stopped, he looked in, and he saw the linen wrap, linen wrap beans lying there, but he did not go in. This word in Greek is blepo. It, it, it means to glance. It means to kind of peek in, and you kind of got a glimpse, but you, glimpse, but you didn't get the whole picture of what was really going on. This young kid is afraid to enter. I mean, if you, if you guys... I probably serve on the cemetery board. I say this all the time. But if I got reports that somebody stole a grave, uh, no, somebody stole a casket out of a grave, and then I was to run to the cemetery, like it was somebody I cared about, and then the casket was open, but it was, we always say six feet under, but it's like way deeper than that. Like they go like, it's like far when you look down. Like you don't want to fall in for fear that, you know, that you use it for its appropriate reasons, you know, and it's okay to laugh, guys. Come on. <laughs> but if I got word that somebody stole a body and I ran to the graveyard and I see the hole down 12 feet or 10 feet, whatever it is, and I see the casket open, I see some clothes, am I going to jump down there and, and investigate? No. <laughs> John Bleppo, he glanced at it. He saw it. Peter comes running up. Verse 6, and Simon Peter also came following, and he entered the tomb. He jumped on down. And he saw different Greek word. Theoreo. It's where we get our word to theorize. And so when he jumps, well, he doesn't jump. He runs into the tomb. He starts scratching his head. And he says, I see the linen wrappings. This is where we buried him. There was guards here. This is what's going on. And he begins to ponder. Verse 7, and the face cloth which had been on his head not lying there, the linen wrappings rolled up in a proper place by itself. So the other disciple, John, who had first come to the tomb, then he entered and he saw and believed. This word saw, would you believe it? It's a third Greek word. This word is oida, which means I got it. I understand. Now when we go back to Revelation, verse 17 when I saw him, what word do you think he used? Oida. When I saw this vision, I got it. This is the living Christ. And therefore, the proper response that I'm going to have before this holy God is to fall on my face like a dead man. To see Jesus for who he is should have this reaction. Jesus isn't just your co-pilot. Jesus isn't just your, an, a rabbit foot on your keychain for good luck. Jesus is the all-powerful, almighty God who always was. That when you read Genesis 1, Genesis 1, 1 I was trying to get ahead to my next sentence, and we're told that God created the heavens and the universe, like the heavens and earth and all things, that it was spoken into existence. Who did this? It was Christ, Colossians tells us. I'm running out of air. I need to breathe. That we're told that Jesus spoke these things into existence. So when you encounter Jesus, you're, you're, you're encountering the all-powerful, almighty God who before you existed, he knew you. He formed you. He placed the hairs on your head and numbered them. Not just that he knows the count. When you read it, it's actually that your hairs are numbered, like that each follicle has a number and each hair has a mass. Like he could put them all in the right spot. Not that he could just tell you you have X amount of hairs on your head. Like this is the all-knowing God. He falls on his face. And then I love Jesus. I mean, I love, we all should love Jesus. But what does Jesus do? He placed his right hand on me saying, don't be afraid. If you look at the post-resurrection accounts of Jesus encountering people, they're terrified. And what does Jesus say? Shalom. My peace be with you. It's okay, guys. This was all done for a reason. This was all done so that you might have a relationship with the Father. I'm not here to hurt you. 
not here to terrify you. I'm here to rescue you. Remember verse 5, to him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood. And so I would suggest to you, with this, do not be afraid. If you start reading Revelation and you think it's to freak you out and to terrify you, you're missing the whole purpose of the book. Unless you're an unbeliever. It's a little star. If you don't know Christ is your Savior, I want you to be terrified by this Jesus. Because you're still in your sins. But the God who judges you is the, is the God who gave his life for you. He says, I'm the first and the last And the living one, I was dead and behold, I am alive forevermore. I have the keys of death and Hades. This is the gospel front and center in this book. We're going to revisit this. I'm going to come back as we end soon. Then we come to verse 19. And the command is given to John again. Therefore, write the things which you have seen and the things which are and the things which will take place after these things. So I mentioned to you that when he says, I was in the Spirit, some have chosen to outline the book of Revelation in that way. Verse 19, there are others who choose to outline Revelation through this verse. This is the way that I've adopted and the way I see it. So, therefore write the things which you have seen, past tense. This would be chapter 1 of Revelation. The things that he has seen is this, some words, (laughs) magnificent, overwhelming image of the living Christ. He saw this image. Jesus tells him, you write down these things that you saw. Then he says, uh, and the things, sorry, therefore write the things which you've seen, comma, second part and the things which are. So as we turn the page, and we go to chapter 2, you can do this. From chapter 2, all the way through chapter 3, the church is going to stand on trial. Jesus is testifying against, applauding them. He's, he's sort of giving them their, their grades for how they're doing. And so in chapter 2, verse 1, to the angel of the church in Ephesus, write this. So that church is going to be addressed. You come down to verse 12, you see, and to the angel of the church in Pergamum, write this, verse 18. And to the angel of the church in Thyatra, write this. Verse, chapter 3, verse 1, to the angel of the church in Sardis, write this. Verse 7 of chapter 3, and to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write this. To the angel of the church in Laodicea, write this. So the seven churches are just chapters 2 and 3. <clears throat> Therefore, write the things which you've seen, chapter 1, and the things which are, chapters 2 and 3, present day, church. These are, these are epistles, these letters, chapter 2 and 3, to the church's present day. And then he says, and to the things which will take place after these things. This is where it gets complicated. <laughs> For me and figuring out how I'm going to handle this within our church on Sundays. So chapter 4, verse 1, you read, After these things, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice which I had heard, like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me, said, Come up here. I will show you which must, which, I will show you what must take place after these things. And so then John and his spirit is sort of transported up to heaven. And chapters 4 and 5, it's a scene that happens in heaven, this description. And then these judgments begin to unfold between chapters basically 4 through 18. Then in chapter 19, we see the description of the risen Christ returning to earth. And we see the second coming of Christ. Chapter 20, we see the description of the millennial kingdom where Christ reigns and rules for a thousand years. 
And then beginning in chapter 21 and 22, we see this image of the earth, the heavens and earth being done away with, the new heavens and earth coming. And so that's kind of the outline of Revelation. We'll look at it more later. As we come back to chapter 1, we're going to end today with communion. Um, I'm, I'm, kind of, I'm shocked a little bit how it, it almost, it never fails that after communion, somebody will be here that will come up to me. Often, it will be like an 80-year-old person that's visiting, and they'll say, I've never had communion explained so clearly It's sweet, but it also kind of breaks my heart a little bit. And so as we take communion today, I want to be really clear that we understand what we're doing. So looking back at verses, the second half of 17b and 18, there we read Jesus saying, don't be afraid. Don't fear. When we take communion, it's a memorial remembering what Jesus did on our behalf on the cross. And what we fear most is death. Like dying. It's something within us. We've been hardwired. Solomon tells us that God has placed eternity in our hearts. And so when we face death, when we see somebody that we know and love and they've died, or somebody that we don't even know, there's something within us that keeps us away from that individual because it doesn't sit right with us, because we were never created to die. And so when I look at communion and we look on the fact that Jesus went to the cross and he died, absorbing the wrath that was due us, going to the grave for three days and then rising again, he conquered death so that death no longer has its sting on us. And so I think we come to communion, taking the Lord's Supper, and we recognize what Jesus said and we don't have to fear death anymore. We recognize that we live in him and we have life in him. He goes on to say, I am the first and the last. He's already said the alpha and the omega. Last week I kind of joked A to Z like Amazon, meaning that it's everything the Alpha and the Omega. This is the beginning and the end of the Greek alphabet that Jesus is the first and last. He is the all in all, the beginning and the end. There is none greater than him. He is Lord. He goes on to say in verse 18, and the living one. I was dead and behold, I am alive forevermore. He appears to John and he says, John, you remember? Now you're an old man. You think John ever forgot going into that tomb and seeing the empty tomb after watching his Lord crucified on the cross? He says, John, I'm alive forevermore. I've conquered death. He says, I have the keys of death and Hades that he controls life. And there's this plea to come to him to receive this gift that he's offered, that you would be transformed by him. And so I'm going to ask the guys to come forward to get the elements. They can come forward. Not sure they are. There we go. But they're going to come up and they're going to pass out the cracker and the juice. And I would just ask you guys can go ahead and distribute them. But as, as we take a few minutes here to get the elements out to all of us, um, I, I would encourage you just to ponder his death, to ponder his sacrifice, to ponder what he did on your behalf. We're told that communion is a time for us to reflect, to confess, uh, to examine our hearts, um, to get right with God. And so as it's going out, please just take this time to do that. So we read again. Do not be afraid, for I am the first and the last, the living one. 
and I was dead. And that's the symbol of this cracker, this that we have in our hand. As we take communion, as we celebrate the Lord's Supper, it's to remind us of what Jesus did for us. And this cracker is symbolic of his broken body, that he went to the cross to have the wrath of God placed upon him. And it was due us. And so we take communion to recognize what Jesus did on our behalf. He says, I was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. And this is the juice. It's to remind us of the new covenant that, that through his sacrifice, we have access. His sacrifice was a once and for all sacrifice. It was effective to cleanse us down to our conscience, as Hebrews says. And I think so often we think of Jesus here, not here. And if there's anything that we get from Revelation chapter 1 is that this picture of the living Christ is overwhelming. And he still touches down to us regardless of what you're going through and says, don't be afraid. Trust me. He is our hope. He is commissioned us to go out and to share this good news. But most of all, if you're here and you're not certain if you've ever trusted Christ for salvation, my prayer is that you would believe him, that you would trust him, that you would give him your life. So Father, I am just find myself particularly moved today, Lord, to, to think upon the cross. That none of us are worthy of this gift. Lord, I confess that I find myself like Thomas so often, thinking that you're a really small God and not really risen and not really in charge and in control of situations. And so, Father, I thank you for this day. I thank you for this letter of revelation. I thank you for what John recorded for us, this image that you gave him of the risen Christ in his glory, in his might, in his power. It's so terrifying that John fell at, his, at your feet as a dead man. And to see your character and your nature simply placing your right hand on his shoulder and saying, don't be afraid. I can hear you say, don't be afraid. Don't let life intimidate you. Don't be afraid about the future. Don't be afraid about all the things that you're so good at worrying about. Just give them to me. And Father, I thank you that you're a God that calls us to seek you, to call out to you, to cry out to you in all things. We thank you that we have hope in Christ. We thank you that he died for us. We thank you that he rose again and that he is the living one. We take this communion, praising you, giving you thanks and all the glory. And it's in Jesus' mighty and holy name we pray. Amen.